You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you're back from vacation, I guess. Woo! You know, I think this past week, if it has taught us anything, it's that we need to do a little bit better job announcing when there's not going to be a show, but... Thanks for all the people who wrote in at comainevent.com uh, with actual welfare checks. Yeah, they people were writing about in us? to see if we were okay because uh, there was no Comain Event podcast or Breakfast of Champions newsletter last week. Which I mean, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Were that, you tempted to reply to any of those welfare checks with an email that just said "help" and nothing else? No, I guess <laughs> I reached out to a couple people to let them know that we were in fact okay, but that. You were just on vacation. Uh, I did what I could. I think really what this highlights is how few weeks off we take. It's a compliment, right? It's it a almost compliment never to happens. Our consistency. That's right. When when there is no show, people assume that we have literally died. Because what else could stop us? Just sitting here dead in our chairs. Which feels figuratively true. Well, that's another thing, Ben in possibly the most co-main event podcast move in history, which I know we will talk about a little bit more during Listener Mail, but last week did in fact mark the fifth anniversary of the CME. So That just can't be true. Fitting in can't a way. Have, can't have been five years. Fitting in a way, I think, that we, that we skipped it, that we took it off. Yeah, we earned that one. Did you, did you have a good time on your vacation? Anything you want to share with I the kids at home? did almost nothing. Very little. It was wonderful. Well, this week's episode is once again brought to you by the men's grooming geniuses at Fulton and Rourke. It's summertime again, and if we've learned anything from the Fresh Prince, it's that it's extra important to both look and smell your best when the weather turns warm. That's why our pals over at Fulton and Rourke are recommending their solid cologne, Captiva. Captiva. It's formulated with green citrus, wild rock rose, and salt water to provide a clean, fresh scent that makes a perfect choice for the upcoming long, hot summer days. Not only that, Chad, but this time of year, it's a necessity. Our listeners head to FultonandRourke.com and check out all their fine offerings, including the terrific cleansing bar soap, the face wash, foamless shaving cream, and aftershave wipes. Fill your dop kit, which you can also buy over at FultonandRourke.com, by the way, with an assortment of all that great stuff and go forth for fun in the sun with the confidence that your basic human grooming needs are well taken care of. On top of all that, it's Father's Day in a couple of weeks, so if you're struggling to get something for the old man that already has everything, take it from this father that there's nothing better than getting a box or a basket of goods from Fulton & Rourke. You can check out any of the wares on offer. Just go to FultonAndRourke.com, and right now, our listeners can use the promo code the CME. that's all one word, at checkout to save 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's FultonAndRourke.com and the promo code the CME. We got music again this week uh, from The Fifth Element, a music producer at for, from Fort Worth, Texas. So thanks to him from that. If you like what you hear, you can check him out at facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, after going two and three and fighting just once each year during three of the last four years, Alexander Gustafson finds himself the number one contender for the light heavyweight title? Believe it. And in round number two, cheating women's featherweight champion Jermaine Durandamy says she won't fight Cyborg Justino, citing as her reason cheating. And in round number three, Jose Aldo and Max Holloway try to unify the men's featherweight title this weekend at UFC 212. The winner of that bout will be undisputed champion and will have almost as many title belts as Conor McGregor's infant son. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Rusty from Atlanta, and we referred to it earlier. He writes, As I look at the calendar from the year of our Lord, 2012, I notice at May 23rd of that year that it was an important day in MMA history. 
What is it, you may ask? Why, the very first episode of the co-main event podcast dropped. That's right, boys, as of tomorrow, assuming you're reading this on Monday, 522. Ha ha ha! Gotcha. Your show from the beautiful hills of Montana will be half a decade old. How does that make you guys feel? Uber nostalgic? Any favorite memories of the past five years? Do you still see the show continuing in another five years? I'm sure... Uh, you can speak for the, I can speak for the dozens and dozens of listeners out there by saying thank you for this show. I know they put a smile or at least a half-hearted smirk on my face every week. Mazel tov and congratulations. It seems impossible to me that we really started this in May of 2012. Think about how different our lives were, Chad. Neither one of us had any children running around our houses. At this point, all of our children together could feel the starting roster of a basketball team. That's right. A formidable one, if I do say so myself. I mean, one that would have to get by on a lot of grit and heart, but sure, yeah. It seems difficult for me to even remember what we were thinking when we started this podcast. Just a couple of fresh-faced youngsters charging out <laughs> to meet the world with enthusiasm and, and naivete. And I remember when I first suggested, what if we had our friend, noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock, come in and do a segment where he read Fighter's tweets, and you were like, that'll never work. No one will ever go for that. Well, you know, actually, now that you bring it up, it makes me realize uh, that we should probably get Sir Nigel Longstock like a watch or uh, <laughs> right. like a, a cigar cutter with his initials engraved on him. So whatever you get a trusted employee for five years of just donating his time. And if you tell him it's been five years, that'll really force a, a pretty difficult self-reflective period for him, I think. I think Sir Nigel thinks of this whole thing as like a long, lost, drunken weekend. So <laughs> I'm sure it would startle him to find out that it's been half a decade. It startles me, honestly. <laughs> well, how about this question from Rusty? If you had to lay odds on it, do you still see the show continuing in another five years? Because I would tell you, not a chance in hell. There's no way. But at the same time, I would have said... We're not going to make it five years to begin with. Nope. So yeah. maybe we'll both be sitting here almost I, 45 years of age. I mean, what are still the doing odds the show? that we're both still going to be alive in five years? Well, the tip off number one will be if the podcast doesn't come out a couple weeks in a row. Yeah. People can call the Missoula County Sheriff's Office to come to our houses and, and breach the entryway. Let's just go ahead and get like a forum email that begins where we regret to inform you, like all ready to go, so we can just hit send on that bad boy. Little, Whichever one of us is still standing. Like with some kind of fail safe kill switch, like if we don't go in and enter a special code every two weeks, those emails go, go out <laughs> there automatically. You go. Yeah, I can see no way for this to go badly. Anyway, five years in the books. This is episode, what, 258? Sure, I we don't just know. Just got new microphones last week. There you go. One new microphone, anyway. Next question this week comes to us from Christian King, which is either a dude's name or a religious reference that he has snuck, snuck onto the show. You never know. He writes, I'm imagining a world ruled by Uzdemir. I know, did I, was I close? Ozdemir? Ozdemir. This man could seriously get a title shot. Let's say John Jones and Daniel Cormier are set to fight, but unexpectedly John Jones managed to run over an entire class of second graders. Who'd have thunk it? Not only that, but he runs uh, from the decimation, leaving clumps of pigtails and worksheet pages sprinkled to the ground between his car tracks. Wow. I mean, who could have imagined that he'd return to the scene, slipping and sliding on young brain matter? Whoa. I mean, this gets graphic. Yeah. Really Just to a sprinkle a shit ton of cocaine and cannabis onto everything in a manic fit. Let's all agree that nobody could have predicted this man-child tearing a hole into a, a, a key with his teeth and spinning like a carousel, spraying, uh, spraying a stimulating breeze over the children's limbs and breathing deep that cold, anesthetizing air. Uh, Jesus. Who'd, who'd be left to fight Cormier? Stay <laughs> ready. <laughs> That's the question in the end? <laughs> Stay ready, Vulcan. Uh, you're so close, exclamation point. Um... That was a weird fight. Let's talk about this, this. Very weird. You know, the all, uh, what, like 30, 28 seconds of Vulcan Olsdemir versus uh, Misha Sirkinov. Um, because it's just, you know, two hard-nosed light heavyweights going out there and immediately starting banging. Uh, it looks like uh, Misha Sirkinov's got him a little bit on the run. Chases him back against the cage, and the first time it happened, like the until I saw the replay, I did not even know what happened. I was like, "Did right, was was yeah. Sirkinov, Did he suffer a heart attack? Like just a, an, an instantaneous brain aneurysm? Yeah, did a sniper and like high up in the the Ericsson Globe Arena pick him off? Because I didn't even notice the right hand landing, and even on the replay, when you're looking for it, it seems like 
kind of a, a nothing shot. Like, I mean, it hits him right behind the ear. It's a good spot to hit somebody to make him fall down. But still, it just seemed like a really short kind of in-retreat kind of punch. And he goes down, and then now we have to live in the under the reign of Vulcan Olsdemir, I guess. Yeah, um... And I think it was just one of those shots that was like perfectly placed I guess. above and behind the ear where Misha Sirkinov's off switch happens to be located. And I, in, in the defense of the big O, uh, Vulcan Ozdemir, uh, he guy used to be a heavyweight. We know he hits pretty hard. He's got a, a whole bunch of TKO victories via punches on his record. So, um, I'm not going to go as far as to say I think there was anything fishy about the about the fight, but it certainly was shocking to see Misha Sirkinov, uh, who was the favorite, like four to one favorite, by the way, uh, just get dropped straight down on his face by sort of like a uh, a short, almost glancing right hand. It seemed like at least on the replay, um, but I just don't think we can underestimate how, how hard these dudes punch. Like the dudes this size who are athletes and trained to do it, uh, you get clipped behind the ear. Uh, you may well be tucking yourself in for a nap for a little while. First knockout loss of Sirkinov's career. First loss in the UFC. He's been on like that four-fight winning streak since coming into the UFC, and then he goes down like that. Now, this, though, uh, when I think about the question about who would be left to fight Cormier in this situation, seems like we're not even mentioning the paper boy. Right. I was going to say, like, this win for, for Vulcan Ozdemir comes at, like, uh, kind of a bad time, really, if you if you are indeed looking to be on the bench to sub in in case uh, either John Jones or Daniel Cormier uh, disqualifies themselves from competition leading up to this to this fight. Because after Alexander Gustafson's beatdown of Glover Tashira and Jimmy Manna was still hanging around, the light heavyweight division actually has an uncharacteristic number of dudes who could, in fact, fill in at UFC 214 if Cormier versus Jones. Uh, doesn't end up happening, and you would think that Ozdemir is is pretty low on that list, even well, still after this after this win. Especially because it seems like the UFC has made a decision to invest a little bit in Jimmy Manoa and in hyping him up, uh, showing him at events and and just mentioning his name an awful lot, like really kind of throwing him psychologically into that mix, uh, even if it seems like it's still. You know, there are top three light heavyweights and then everybody else. He still seems, but he seems like he's at the top of everybody else, uh, at least right now. And, uh, you know, he, Vulcan Ozdemir, these are some guys who are going to want to keep their phones on, uh, because, man, who knows what could happen by the end of the summer here. Right. Well, that, I mean, just the, the, uh, the, the lack of depth at 205 pounds means that, Vulcan Ozdemir is, he's right there now after this win, especially because Misa Sirkinov is a guy, uh, who a lot like Nikki Thrills, uh, Nikita Krilov was a guy that we were expecting to make a run in, at the light heavyweight division probably this year and or next year. And so to see him knocked out like this in the first round, I don't know if these UFC official rankings that I'm looking at at the moment have been updated yet. I assume not because Glover Tashira is still number two. But uh, Volkan Oz- Ozdemir was already number five, and, and there just aren't a lot of guys between him and, and a title shot. And in a, a division where it's not exactly middleweight. You don't exactly have guys falling all over each other trying to get the, the shot at the gold. Uh, you're going to see one of these guys who seem like sleeper prospects in a way because they don't get a lot of attention paid to them. One of these guys is going to work his way into a title shot sooner rather than later, right? Oh, Most man. likely. Yeah, well, let's let's not attempt to peer too far into the future of light heavyweight. That's true, that's true. Uh, next question this week comes to us from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, it's finally happened. Roy Nelson has gone over to Bellator. Now the question is, what do they do with him? He's 2-5 and five in his last seven fights, and by the time he debuts, he'll be 41 years old. Do you give him Fighter A and Fighter B's, a.k.a. Uh, can softballs right down the middle he can knock out of the park, or do you give him Bellator's version of a top heavyweight like Fedor, Mitrione, or Lashley to try to big, bring him back to a heavyweight title? Discourse and preacher wisdom. So this just happened, Ben, This this uh, just a couple days ago. Roy Nelson, longtime UFC stalwart. Uh, I don't know that you would exactly say a company man since he had clashed with the organization a time or two, but seemed like kind of a dependable heavyweight for them, a guy that they certainly knew was marketable and knew was a guy that they could throw out there to have a, a, a slugfest with almost anybody in the world. A fixture, in a way. Yeah, a fixture, uh, all the way back since uh, Ultimate Fighter Season 10, the heavyweights, crossing the aisle over to Bellator, where I think the Cheeseburger Walrus asks a good question because Bellator is starting to 
collect more than a few of these misfit toys that it has. And I would think if you get a guy like Roy Nelson, who has all of the trappings of a drawing card, except for the fact that he hasn't been very successful over the last few years, my first move would be give him a softball that he can, that he can turn on. Yeah. Um, you're thinking maybe like, let's see what Joey Beltran is up to. Something like that. Now you're speaking my language. I mean, if you're Bellator, you want to bring Roy Nelson in with some thunder, right? Give him a, get him a, the possibility of a highlight. Because then if you get him back on, on the winning track, then a fight against Mitrione or, uh, you know, God, I don't want to say Fedor. You don't want to, but, but you might. But Fedor uh, <laughs> starts to make more sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked, I looked at this page on the Bellator website of their the heavyweight fighters they list. First of all, they still list uh, Vitaly Minikov uh, on their list of heavyweights. But there's not a whole lot there. And what there is there is a lot of the ex-UFC guys where it feels like, man, please don't make me watch Roy Nelson and Czech Congo. Like, I don't, don't do that to me. I'd really rather you didn't. Well, here's, here's an off-the-wall question for you, though, Ben. Is Roy Nelson a guy that you could kind of mix and match with these lighter fighters that Bellator has brought in. You know, they've talked about Fedor Emelianenko versus Chael Sonnen. They've talked about, or at least Rory McDonald, the Red King, has talked about Fedor Emelianenko as being a possibility for him. Clearly, Bellator is playing by its own rules, and it will do crazy shit like this. Is it within the realm of a Bellator possibility that you could see Chael Sonnen versus Roy Nelson? Or is that is that where you got to draw the line? I mean... I'm not going to sit here and say would not watch Chael Sonnen versus would Roy Nelson. Would probably watch. Mo Lawal versus Roy Nelson. There you go. Would watch. Um, also, though, Roy Nelson versus Rampage Jackson. I mean. That, that writes itself right there. It really does. How, is, how about this, though? How about if you had come to me and you said, hey, did you hear that uh, Bellator signed Roy Nelson? Uh, and what if I, in turn, said back to you, oh, man, you did that. It was like three weeks ago. You didn't hear that until just now? You would believe me. Yeah, you would, I would. You would, I would. Just because it seems so inevitable in a way. And so, like, this is just the course of events that takes place in MMA in the year of our Lord 2017 that it seems just like such a logical progression. You would have been like, oh, I must have just missed that. I must have, I must have been reading the In Case You Missed It tweets and thinking I was reading the Up to the Minute tweets. Now that you mention it, I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way yet, but Roy Nelson is kind of like the ultimate Bellator 2017 fighter. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. If you were going to, if you had the entire field to choose from and you said, who's the most Bellator guy out there, Roy Nelson's not a bad choice to take that, that title. That's sought after. <laughs> sought after. <laughs> a title. Very prestigious title. Next question this week comes to us from Tyler Peebly. He writes, after the Stockholm main event, referee Mark Goddard went on Twitter to explain that the only fouls that allow five minute breaks are groin shots. Why doesn't a fighter who gets poked in the eye get five minutes? Seems weird to me. Please discuss. Now, Ben, this is obviously kind of an ancillary issue from, uh, Alexander Gustafson versus Glover Tashir. I didn't know if we were going to have time to talk about it in round number one, so I figured we could. Uh, give it a few minutes here. Al, uh, Glover Deshira gets accidentally poked in the eye in round number one, uh, which led to kind of a mystifying exchange between him and the uh, the ringside doctor there in Stockholm uh, and, and referee Mark Goddard, I think correctly informing Glover Deshira that he didn't have five minutes to recover, that he needed to make a decision about whether or not he wanted to keep fighting right away, which is obviously different from the groin strike rule. And I'm going to come out and say, I agree 100% with Tyler Peebly, Pebbly. This is another wrinkle in mixed martial arts rules that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's, it would seem like, if anything, you have a better case for saying that you should get five minutes for the eye thing to help your vision kind of clear. Whereas from the groin strike, you're just trying to feel a little better. Like, you're just trying to not feel sick to your stomach anymore. Feel being... significantly better. <laughs> right. let's, let's not right. downplay this. I mean, you get kicked in the groin. You, It's not like from minute zero to minute five, like a full recovery takes place. But right. I understand. the. But the eye thing, it seems like for safety reasons, it would be better to give the guy, because your eye, like that, could clear up a little bit. Whereas, you know, you get poked in the eye, maybe your vision is a little blurry for 
30 seconds or a minute and you, you, you blink your way through it. You, you walk it out in that sense. Although, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's the thinking is that, hey, if you can't see right away, we don't want you hanging around here and then deciding that you can see or like telling us that you right. can't see if you can't. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're actually interested in fighter safety, I think that approach uh, makes a whole lot of sense. I think that the exchange that occurred between the doctor and Glover Deshira and Mark Goddard and frankly, almost every exchange that we see between fighter and ringside doctor calls into question whether we're actually worried about fighter safety here, like whether our primary concern with these rules is in fact fighter safety. I saw a lot of people online taking issue with the fact that when they asked Glover Deshira if he could see, the first thing he said was no, but then he said, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting, yeah, which... I wasn't necessarily that taken aback by that because I personally am a dude who says no, comma, yeah, all the time. So, and I think that that was what Glover Tashira was saying. I don't think he was necessarily telling the ref and the fight doctor that he couldn't see. But the part that, that struck me weird, Ben, was the fact that they asked him if he could see and he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting. And they yeah. were like, okay, sounds good to us. And then, in fact, Mark Goddard, who, for the most part, does a good job, I think, as a referee, has to stop the doctor. The doctor tries yes, to walk yeah. away, and Mark Goddard stops the doctor just to say, as if he needed to get it on the permanent record, there's no injury here. Right, because the doctor did, it seemed like as soon as he heard what he wanted to hear from, from Glover, yeah, he, he was, was like, good. all right, he was I'm out of here. And then, yeah, uh, Mark Goddard, I think, did kind of a bang-up job uh, throughout this entire main event. There's also the part where... Uh, after the initial eye poke happens where Gustafson's corner is claiming that it was a punch. Oh. Uh, and Mark Goddard tells them, coach your fighter, not me. Well, you watch on the replay. And he's right. You know, yeah, it was a seasoned pro out there, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. You're not going to tell him it was a punch when he could see uh, you boy Lusty Gusty with his fingers out. And even after they restarted it, you could see Gustafson throughout the fight really just doing that, taking advantage of his long arms and sticking that, that hand right in uh, Glover's face and not taking too much care with his fingers. Um, but here's the, the actual rule. This is from the version of the unified rules on the UFC website. And it says, um, you know, for the low blow foul, they really spell out the fighter allowed up to five minutes to recover. And it says fighter fouled by other than low blow. If a contest of mixed martial arts is stopped because of an accidental foul, the referee shall determine whether the unarmed combatant who has been fouled can continue or not. If the unarmed combatant's chance of winning has not been seriously jeopardized as a result of the foul, and if the foul did not involve a concussive impact to the head of the unarmed combatant who has been fouled, the referee may order the contest or exhibition continued after a recuperative interval of not more than five minutes. Oh. So it sounds like you could take like the referee could at his discretion maybe take up to five minutes yeah like based on my reading of what that says right um but it does seem, like there is something weird about it where like you've said before the it seems like everybody's priority when there's a foul that has halted a, a fight is just to get it started immediately as quick as possible so we can move on because nobody's really totally sure what to do in these situations. Right. Which I and, think is understandable, by the way. And that's what it feels like when Mark Goddard is in Glover's face being like, you don't have time. You don't have time. Can you see or not? Can you see? And it's like, man, we could we could stand to back off him a little bit after the man's just been poked in the eye like that to to figure out what the right thing to do here is. So perhaps I stand corrected. I guess I don't know exactly if we were just – if the, this event – in Stockholm called upon the UFC's version of the unified rules, or if over there in Sweden, there would be a slightly augmented version of the rules that, that would be in play. Uh, and it's a commentary on MMA that that's a discussion that we even still need to have. But like, it sounds like if they were just going by the UFC's version of the unified rules, that maybe Mark Goddard did not, did not quite nail it. Okay. Well, here's, here's where it gets tricky is in the next section though, about this, because this, I think, is just a confusing wording of the rules more than anything um, because uh, it says, like, that the referee can take him, take the injured fighter to the ringside doctor and have the ringside doctor examine the fighter. The ringside doctor has up to five minutes to make their determination. If the ringside doctor determines that the fighter can continue in the contest, the referee shall, as soon as practical, restart the fight. Unlike the low-blow foul rule, the fighter does not have up to five minutes of time to use at their discretion and must continue the fight when instructed by the referee. Seems like the difference here is the referee could take as much as five minutes to determine if the guy has been poked in the eye too badly to continue. The f but it's not the same rule as when you say to the fighter, tell me when you're ready to continue, and then we'll restart the way they do. But, I mean, it seems like, would it kill us to, like, tell Glover to hang out for 30 seconds and then we'll ask him if he can see? Like, it doesn't seem like that's going to completely harm the, the flow of the fight. 
Yeah, who wrote this? Did Dashiell Hammett write the rules there? Like, we're, <laughs> we're in a mystery here. There's a lot of ins and outs to this thing, man. I know you like a good mystery. Uh, you want to do one more question? You want to do this question about Gokan Saki? Sure. From Kevin Johnson, he writes, So now the UFC has signed Gokan Saki, otherwise known as the proprietor of pain, the minister of misery, the Turkish motherfucking Tyson. What will be the expectation for him at light heavyweight? Who could they match him up with that won't enter the cage with a singlet to quote-unquote wrestle fuck him? He picked uh, quite the grapple-heavy division to go into. Not many people that will be willing to play kicky shins with him. Dishizi for sheezy. So obviously we're talking about uh, Gokan Saki, the uh, the heavyweight Muay Thai and kickboxing star, recently signed uh, with the UFC just just this past week, um, and is a guy who could frankly seems like he could make some noise at that uh, division that, like we have said uh, in the past, doesn't have a whole lot of depth. He's a, a known face and name to to combat sports fans, uh, though as maybe a caveat, I would say he enters. The UFC as at 0-1 in his mixed martial arts career, which that might be a first as far as I know. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like uh, everybody must know what we're really doing here, right? Like when the UFC is going to go and uh, pick him a, a fight, who they're going to match him up against, they're they're obviously not throwing him in there like, let's find out if this guy can sink or swim in the field of mixed martial arts, like especially like at his age. You're not really trying to figure out if he can restart a whole new career. You're trying to get a little excitement out of him, which he's good for. Um, but it seems like the USC is obviously going to go looking for somebody who is willing to play kicky shins with him or something to that effect. Don't you think? Yeah. And uh, the dude is only 33 years old. He'll turn 34 in October. So he's not ancient by any stretch of the imagination, especially uh, for this division, you look at the rankings. I mean, I, I could see him throwing him out there with an Ilir Latifi style guy, the bricklayer. I could see him throwing him out there with Jean Volante. Uh, I don't I suppose you don't want to go down the, the Roger Nog path because uh, you probably know what's going to happen there. But, you know, there's probably going to be no shortage of, of matchups for Saki once he, he gets in the UFC. Uh, and. I guess he signed a multi-fight deal with the UFC, but I just we don't know the timing yet of when, when he's going to try to get in the cage. Still, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't interested to see how it's going to play out. No, man. like These are the kind of guys that the light heavyweight division necessarily have a lot of young, just emerging prospects that seem like they're going to come out of nowhere and take the world on fire. Like You need guys who come in with a modicum of preloaded notoriety, if nothing else. I think that that's why, uh, what was it, a, a year or two ago when uh, the... Uh, decorated amateur wrestler kyle kyle snyder was at a ufc event and just like tweeted hey i want to i want to fight ufc get me a fight like you know people were like okay let's you know if he's going to come in and and be a hot prospect at 205 you could do a lot worse so i think that these are the kind of guys that that light heavyweight needs frankly i mean you can't you throw some warm bodies capable of violence and Maybe the the rest sorts out itself. I I, I can't. I, it's not as if like, in this post CM Punk era, we're worried that Gokan Saki of all people is going to be like you know diminishing the value of mixed martial arts. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning, except last Friday morning, to catch you up on news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast, which is usually once a week, stuff always happens, news always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, despite the fact that Alexander Gustafson never sunk lower than number four on the UFC's official 205-pound rankings, at least according to the UFC's underrated European broadcast team of John Gooden and Dan Hardy, Gustafson hadn't had an easy few years. He came into this fight against Glover Teixeira just two and three in his last five fights. Uh, he had fought just once 
I believe in 2013, just once in, in, I think 2014 and then once in 2016. So a little bit of inactivity from him. Uh, he had talked openly about retirement in the wake of that knockout loss to Anthony Johnson, which also happened at home in Stockholm, January, 2015. He had talked a little bit about, uh, suffering from a lack of motivation to continue uh, training and competing at the highest level of mixed martial arts. But then he comes out uh, on what was Sunday afternoon here in the one true, true time zone and puts a 21 minute ass whooping on Glover Tashira. Uh looks as good as he ever has. And maybe we can talk about the reasons for that in a couple of minutes, uh, but seems to put himself right back in the pole position here to be the number one contender and take on the winner of Daniel Cormier versus John Jones at UFC 214. Uh, so that's not a bad turnaround, I would say, for the mauler. No. You know, like you, I think it was a little surprising to me as I was watching the broadcast and I noticed a one next to Alexander Gustafson's name and a two next to Glover Teixeira's name. And I was thinking, how is that possible? Right, because you see those numbers and you think this is as good as it gets yeah. in the light heavyweight division. I think that's what those numbers are meant to do in that case. Uh, because, yeah, you feel like I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm watching the number one in the guy, guy in the world against the number two guy in the world. How lucky am, am I? All on free cable TV. Uh, and, you know, there are a little bit of some tricky things going on with the way the UFC does rank. It's for one thing, John Jones not in them at all because of his troubles. Um, Daniel Cormier not technically in them because he's the champion. And the way they do it is, you know, the champion is somehow like exempt from the rankings, which... I think it's a little deceptive because number one should be the number one guy who is the champion. But yeah, and then you got Alexander Gustafson and Glover Teixeira who both come into this fight with a winning streak at one. Uh, and yet, once the actual fight starts, uh, you know, you watch Alexander Gustafson at work and you think, he's still got it, man. Like, especially at times, he seems like. He has really figured out exactly what he wants to be doing and what he doesn't want to be doing. People are going to make fun of him for, you know, turning his back and kind of running back out into the middle of the cage. And yet against a guy like Glover Teixeira, who seems like, he, you know, he's uh, lacking the speed. He likes to get people caught up against the fence so he can throw those bombs at him. Uh, he also has to find a way to get inside Alexander Gustafson's reach. That's exactly where he wants to be is up against the fence. So it might look silly, but. That seemed to me as like just another part of a smart game plan on Alexander Gustafson's part, and he just kind of systematically picked him apart. Yeah, I think it was a really smart game plan, and it doesn't always bother me to the degree that it seems to bother some other people when when fighters literally turn tail and, and run to get away from a power striker or a, a pressure fighter and get their backs off the cage. And I think when it comes to that strategy and talking about that strategy, dealing with that strategy – it's clear that we're dealing in shades of gray, right? Because like when Caleb Starnes does it in the the infamous example of that uh, against Nate Quarry years ago, you were looking at like mere and sheer avoidance. When Alexander Gustafson does it to Glover DeShira, it looks goofy, but he's also completely tuning that dude up on the feet. You yeah, and he's say, bringing him back to the center so that he can uppercut him in the face some more. Yeah, you can't rightly say that uh, that Alexander Gustafson was running away from Glover Teixeira in any way other than than like extremely literally in those exact seconds because you know when he gets the fight back to the center of the cage, he's lighting Teixeira up with every strike ever invented. Pretty much, he's throwing jabs. The uppercut obviously is his best weapon in this fight. Uh, hooks, knees, elbows, a spinning back elbow at one point in what was probably Alexander Gustafson's best single highlight of the fight in the second round where he lands that spinning elbow and then drops to Shira with a series of punches. Like this was a destruction by Alexander Gustafson. And the fact that he made the smart decision to keep his back off the cage, I think is probably one of the primary factors in him being able to win. And therefore I don't mind it. Now, clearly, though, the best highlight of the fight is at the very end where he hits him with three straight uppercuts. Right. And each one, after he hits him with it, it's kind of like, okay, I won't do that to you again. Psych. Yes, I will. Okay, but we're done now. No, we're not. And then after he sees uh, Glover is completely stumbling around, still trying to throw a right hand that is nowhere near close, then he comes back with the, the right cross to finish it off. Um, that seemed to me like really hammering home the point for Alexander Gustafson. Uh, the one thing that's difficult for me to tell about this, because it seemed like we're seeing like a really sharp Alexander Gustafson, maybe one of the sharpest ones we've seen in years, if not it, ever. Um, it also seems like, are we seeing the, the rapid decline of a Glover Teixeira? Do we see the best of one guy against the worst of another guy? 
I think it's probably a mixture of both. It's not like those things have to be mutually exclusive. You can have a really, really, really good Alexander Gustafson who just turned 30 in January, so is still sort of a young pup uh, for this division. You can have a guy who, after some tough times, has maybe made some changes and rediscovered himself uh, in this light heavyweight division. And you can also have a 37-year-old Glover Deshira whose offense has become a little bit predictable in the days since he fought John Jones for the title at UFC 172 back in the summer of 2014. Uh, you know, those two things uh, can definitely meet in the middle and create this this amazing moment for Alexander Gustafson. I don't think you can take it away from Gustafson, but I also think that you have to uh, be reasonable about the level of competition here, despite the fact that Glover Deshira was officially the second-ranked light heavyweight contender. Uh, and I guess that leads to the what is the million-dollar question for Alexander Gustafson, and that is whether or not he has or can close the competitive gap enough that he's going to be trouble for the winner of, of John Jones and Daniel Cormier. Yeah, well, I think on one hand, it is smart of him after the fight um, to hear his comments where he says that he hopes Daniel Cormier wins and has a title because he likes Daniel Cormier and he thinks John Jones is the biggest enemy, the way he put it. Like basically that he acknowledges John Jones is the best guy in the division and the pound for pound best, um, but thinks he is not a good person, which, man, if you're trying to feed the UFC uh, material to help them hype a, another Jones-Alexander uh, Gustafson fight, That'll go a long way toward it because, and I don't, I can't tell if he's doing that on purpose or if he's just, he seems like a really sincere guy and maybe that's just exactly how he feels. But strategically, it's also a good move because you probably are going to have John Jones, uh, come out of that rematch with Daniel Cormier as a champion. That'd be by my bet right now. Uh, and then, you know, the UFC is going to be looking for something to do with John Jones and you're going to be able to say, I'm the one who gave him his toughest fight, sent him to the hospital afterwards. Um, arguably could have won the decision in that one. Um, and, you know, you liked the Daniel Cormier, John Jones thing because it was a personal rivalry. I'll do that too in my own, you know, sincere Swedish way. Uh, you can work with that. It seems like setting himself up for the future. Now, whether he wins that fight or not, I don't know. There was all that talk with John Jones uh, for the first one that he had been kind of partying it up in training camp, which in retrospect seems only easier to believe about John Jones. Um, but, who knows? Maybe that doesn't make as big a difference as we think If when you put him in there with a really on-point Alexander Gustafson like the one we just saw. Yeah, and if you're Alexander Gustafson, BT-dubs, you also have a TKO victory over Jimmy Manoa from 2014. So if it's a neck-and-neck -neck race between those guys to see who's uh, next in line for a title shot, maybe Alexander Gustafson gets the knob there. I think the point, to me is that Alexander Gustafson had good close fights with both John Jones and Daniel Cormier. So I wouldn't really mind watching him fight either of those guys again. And I think, you know, you would have different intrigue for both of those fights. If you want to renew the John Jones fight, you, you, you want to see, was John Jones really just a shadow of himself at UFC 165 the first time they fought? Had he really been partying and, and would that kind of embarrassment like light a fire under John Jones who then come in? against Alexander Gustafson, uh, sharp and, and well-trained and on point. And against Daniel Cormier, they, they fought to a split decision at UFC 192. So, uh, you know, if you have to watch Cormier and, and Gustafson do it again, you know, that, that was a good fight the first time around too. So I think you, you, you got stuff to work with with Alexander Gustafson. A wrinkle in the whole thing that I always forget is when John Jones and Daniel Cormier had their, their now somewhat infamous weigh-in brawl that knocked over the stage prior to UFC 178. That was supposed to be Alexander Gustafson out there. It was supposed to be Jones and Gustafson, but Gustafson got hurt, uh, and so they had to sub Daniel Cormier in, and the rest is history. So uh, if you're Alexander Gustafson, I can see you having some urgency to get back in there with either of those two guys. Um, and if you ask me, I think he earned it with this performance against Glover Teixeira on Saturday. Are you saying we could have had a moment where John Jones was sitting there with the earpiece on SportsCenter going, are you there, pussy? And the guy answering is Alexander Gustafson going, yes, I am here, John. What, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, it might not have played exactly the same, but, but that's where we were. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure, we can do Are You Fucking Well, Ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is Alexander Gustafson related, so I guess I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. I guess you got to give the guy some credit for asking his girlfriend to marry him inside the cage on national television after a 21-minute fight in what I assume is the second language of both 
Alexander Gustafson and his girlfriend. But I am going to give an Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to Alexander Gustafson since, and this is a quote, his method of asking his future wife to marry him is, quote, thanks for having our kid. Do you want to marry me? Huh. Okay. So pure romance yeah. there in the cage <laughs> thanks, from the mauler. Thanks for doing me a solid by uh, helping with the whole procreation thing. I guess I owe you this. Do you want to marry me? Who could say no to that? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? You know, we heard about the uh, the UFC fighter athlete retreat uh, in Vegas with the new ownership. And it sounded like maybe the the messaging could have used some work from what we've heard some some fighters afterwards. For one thing... We heard that uh, a dude from Budweiser showed up uh, looking and sounding like he had had a few soda pops first thing in the morning. Getting high on his own supply? Yeah. Is that- Which, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe Budweiser would be a fun company to work for. I don't know. Uh, didn't seem like maybe that went over so great with the fighters. Also, uh, somebody from Reebok getting up there and talking about what a good deal this uh, – sponsorship thing with the UFC has been for them, which to a lot of the fires stewing there over how much money they have lost over it probably did not exactly rub them the right way. But then to cap it all off in order to show their appreciation, Reebok gave the fighters what looked to be a 50% off coupon for the Reebok store. Are you fucking kidding me? That's what you do for them. That's the way you you get all the fighters together and you think we really want to like make a good impression. We know there's been some some animus over this deal. Let us see if we can smooth things over. Here we go. We'll give them a coupon to buy our stuff, you know, at like a significant like decrease in price. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? You think that Nike shows up to like an NFL retreat? With coupons for the yeah. players? Buy one, get one half off. Yeah, yeah the kind of, that kind of thing. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, we can end our speculation as to what UFC women's featherweight champion Jermaine Durandamy will decide to do with her belt, or at least we now know what she won't decide to do, and that apparently is fight Cyborg Justino, basically the one fighter anybody wants to see uh, in a title fight at women's featherweight right now, because she is a known and proven cheater. Now, first of all, it seems to me like if that was going to be your position, you could have announced it way sooner than this. Uh, I don't know what the big delay on that was. But also, you know, Durandamy has said that she is prepared to be stripped of the title uh, for this decision, obviously knowing that it's not going to be super popular with the UFC. It seems like if you're trying to destroy women's featherweight as a thing during this precarious time soon after its birth in the UFC, this would be a pretty good way to do it. Yeah, talking about bad messaging, as you were just talking about with Reebok uh, a minute or two ago, the optics on this Jermaine Durandamy thing are are bad, not only because, uh, like you said, she could have come out immediately and said that she wouldn't fight Chris Cyborg due to uh, her previous uh, run-ins with, with the drug testers. Could have said that right off the bat instead of kind of hemming and hawing about what's going on. Maybe hand in- surgery. With the injured hand, you know, kind of leaving it up in the air for a while because... If you wait this long and then come back to the, oh, the thing she did in 2011 is the reason that I won't fight her, that to me makes it look like you reverse engineered this shit. Like, you weren't going to fight Chris Cyborg, and then you figured out a reason why. Uh, so that, again, is a bad look for Jermaine Durandamy, who at this point has maybe the worst public relations stint of any UFC champion that I can think of. Like, immediate. Because clearly John Jones had his troubles, as we said earlier in the show. But, but his is a body of work right, that yeah, he, he, he developed over years. It frankly took a while for him to get fully revved into. Like, Jermaine Durandamy hit the ground running. in, And, like, at this point, nearly literally hit the ground running from Cyborg <laughs> Justino. Nice. And so, uh, yeah, man, this, this featherweight division seemed like it got off to a rocky start to begin with because you couldn't put Cyborg into the title fight and had to do Durandamy versus Holly Holm. Now, if you're champion is refusing to fight the person that you basically started the division for, 
this seems like it might be a deal breaker for Dana White, who didn't necessarily seem on board with the women's 145 pound division to begin with. Well, and if you look at how it all played out, like you alluded to it at the top of the show, that first of all, she wins the title from former women's bantamweight champion Holly Holm with some questionable tactics of her own, like, you know, hitting after the, the horn, stuff like that. There already was a little bit of uh, negativity toward Jermaine Durandamy from some fans because of that, because of how she won. And then, you know, you immediately go, I don't, don't really know what I'm going to do. And then I decided I'm not going to fight Cyborg. And, you know, Holly Holm, meanwhile, going back down to bantamweight. So you're not going to, you know, you don't really have anybody else in this division. The one other person you do have who is the only, like, money fight at all in that division, you don't want to fight for, you know, ethical reasons, basically. It's like you are trying to convince the UFC that this whole thing was a bad idea. Which, I don't know if that's the position you want to take as the women's featherweight champion. Yeah, and obviously there's some layers happening here because we just had Chris Cyborg Justino at the UFC Fighters Retreat uh, physically strike Angela Magana uh, in the face uh, during an altercation on the streets. Which I think is like the first recorded instance of the video not being worth it. Of like wishing that there was no video, maybe, because we heard this. We had these reports out like, oh, you know, Cyborg punched her at the af- athlete retreat. It sounded like high drama. And then you watch the, the video and it's kind of anticlimactic. It's sort of like, first of all, the dude filming the video got everything in the shot except the punch. Like He got the whole scene <laughs> except the thing that we were all waiting to see. And second of all, uh, it just didn't seem like as big a deal as perhaps it was being made out to be, although the the UFC president came out later and said it was, quote-unquote, very serious, and somehow not that he was going to get Cyborg out of uh, 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 Minnesota jail so she could fight that night on national television or whatever right. he did well, with Jeremy Stevens. If you have to be a female fighter who punches another female fighter, the we're never going to be more sympathetic than when the person you decide to punch is An- Angela Magana. Like, she's she's very punchable. Uh, especially like the, the social media persona she has built for herself. Um, I don't know if you saw Brandon Vera's response, um, and him being like, there's a reason no other fighters are standing up for you here. Um, so maybe a good target selection on Cyborg's part. Right. But I mean, obviously it creates an issue that, that is going to have to be dealt with probably another issue for, for Cyborg Justino before she's able to compete for the 145 pound title, which if you're Jermaine Durandamy, might have given you a little something to work with there. If had you wanted to, you know, continue to slow play this thing a little bit, you could have just said, "Well, let's see how our legal issues work out, and then, yeah, and then we'll then we'll talk about it." Look around though, like you know, you mentioned uh, John Jones going after Daniel Cormier at a press conference. Cormier then throws a shoe out. You know, you've had Nick Diaz start fights with people in hospitals. You know, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that goes on. And when it happens in the men's division, we tend to think that it is awesome. Right. Even if there are like repercussions legally or fines or whatever, we're like, okay, hey, pay those fines, but don't stop. Like this stuff is awesome theater that uh, serves as a good backdrop to the sport. I mean, the big problem you have here is that they're, they're not going to fight each other. Uh, you know, this, the, the size difference means that you're not, it's not going to lead itself to like a pay-per-view bout at some point in the future. Uh, and in that sense, kind of worthless for the UFC, but I don't know. I don't, it seems weird how a lot of people are acting like, well, I cyborg going to be in big legal trouble. And uh, this is a huge issue when like, it's not as if this kind of stuff has never happened before. And we've always found a way to work through it in the men's divisions. Right. It's not like she went up there and struck a civilian. Uh, right. it's kind of a different deal if one professional fighter strikes another professional fighter uh it's not like you got yourself into an anthony johnson situation or anything like that here so it's it's uh it doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a career ender or one where cyborg justino is gonna have a long uh like prison sentence or anything like that it's clearly or a suspension from the ufc and you but, should just come out harder from the prison sentence man <laughs> imagine her emerging from the joint Bunch of prison tats all over. Well, you don't want any piece of that, Jermaine Durandamy. You don't want to be the first, the first fight out of the gate after that for Cyborg. But it's another issue between her and the UFC and what has already been a fairly rocky marriage dating back several years. Uh, and the other thing, as you mentioned, if you take Cyborg Justino off the table for any reason at all, whether it be this issue or with just the simple fact that Jermaine Durandamy says she's not going to fight her, Shut it down, man. Then you, yeah, if you don't shut it down, you basically have to synthesize a women's 145 pound title contender out of thin air. 
And whether or not that's finding someone to move up from bantamweight or whether it's going to Invicta to get Megan Anderson, Megan Anderson, the champion over there who seems more than willing to come over to the UFC and fight whoever, uh, that's what you got to do. And it's, it sets up a, an almost no win situation for this women's featherweight division, which clearly hasn't gone off as expected to date and doesn't seem like it is it's riding the ship in it by any stretch of the imagination so kind of interesting to see what happens i suppose here's the last question i would want to ask about this is i know we are loath to call fighters scared because you know that's just a thing that seems like too many people want to do in mma especially fans just want to say oh well, if this person isn't fighting this person right away it's because they're scared they're ducking them they're running away um and yet in this germane durandamy situation if I were another sort of person, perhaps a person not quite as careful with his words, I might look at this and say, she's scared of Cyborg. Well, that's it, an interesting – I like the way you phrased that. <laughs> not not me. I wouldn't say that. Another person might, however. Yeah. Um, and hey, you know what? If any person in the world is scared of Cyborg Dustino, I get it. Yeah. Because she's scary and does scary stuff to other fighters in the cage. I'm not going to quite go that far with Jermaine Durandamy. You know, she's she's a 10-fight professional mixed martial arts veteran. Uh, she's got a the wealth of kickboxing and Muay Thai experience uh, previous to that. I'm going to say Jermaine Durandamy, if there is anything that she's scared of, it's scared of losing this opportunity that she has inherited to be women's featherweight champion, which... Maybe is not a gold mine, but for Jermaine Durandamy is certainly a feather in her cap that has come about somewhat unexpectedly, at least as we view her. And maybe we've got a little bit of a Michael Bisping style situation happening here where he doesn't necessarily want to run out and fight Yoel Romero right away. She doesn't necessarily want to run out and fight Chris Cyborg right away. It's just that the glaring difference, of course, is that there's no Dan Henderson or George St. Pierre for Jermaine Randomy to go out there and get herself a fight with. True. But she already says that she's prepared for the UFC to strip her, which it seems like you're saying, I'm so scared of losing the gold mine uh, via battle that I will risk having it just snatched away from me without a fight. Yeah, that's a little bit of a weird caveat to throw on top of the whole thing, I, I, I admit. Uh, and we will find out, I guess, where women's featherweight division goes if anywhere other than the trash heap uh as for right now though we are going to move on to round number three Then I suppose that one way or another, the men's featherweight division will move on from Conor McGregor this weekend at UFC 212 when Jose Aldo takes on Max Holloway in a 145-pound title unification bout. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't this the first time that someone comes in to a featherweight title fight as the quote-unquote undisputed champion since Jose Aldo fought Conor McGregor at UFC 194 in December 2015. So a little bit of a break we've had here at the featherweight division. I guess break is not the right word for it since the action has actually been hot and heavy and arguably as interesting as it's ever been both inside and outside the cage. But it seems like, Ben, what we're going for here at UFC 212, aside from a crackerjack of a fight between Jose Aldo and Max Holloway, is maybe a return to normalcy? Or a return to being able to say the word undisputed with a straight face when it comes to the title in this division? And even then, I don't, I mean, it's going to be tough. Like, especially if Jose Aldo goes out there and he beats Max Holloway, don't you think a lot of people are going to be saying, yeah, but you still got knocked out by Conor McGregor and you're just lucky that he skipped town and went to a different weight class and lived a completely different life rather than sticking around? Yeah, I don't know that lucky is necessarily the way I would use to say it to Jose Aldo, since <laughs> okay, I guarantee yeah. you there's nothing that he wants more than to get a second shot at Conor McGregor, and he believe he just came out within the last day or two and now says he believes Conor McGregor will never fight him again, which I don't know if you want to consider that breaking news, so since I think the rest of us knew that yeah. the moment Conor McGregor left the cage after 13 seconds of work against the greatest featherweight of all time, that he was probably... uh 
either done with that division completely or at least going to move on from the Jose Aldo uh, feud that they had had, which was protracted already by the point that that they actually got in the cage together. Uh, But not to let any of that overshadow, which should be an incredible fight here between uh, interim featherweight champion Max Holloway and quote-unquote undisputed featherweight champion Jose Aldo, right? Like this is, if you were going to draw it up on the chalkboard, uh, this is about as good as it gets right now at 145 pounds. It is, and this is a tough one to pick, honestly, because I looked at the betting odds. Aldo is a slight favorite, but it's still really close. And in trying to do my staff picks for the MMA Junkie thing, I keep going back and forth um, because Max Holloway seems on point these days, you know, and not that Jose Aldo doesn't, but after getting knocked out by Conor McGregor, that veneer of, uh, you know, untouchability that he seemed to have after his years in the WEC and as the, the UFC champion, that seems to have dissipated a lot. It's not hard for me to imagine Max Holloway going out there and, and beating him. Right. Max Holloway has not lost since August of 2013 when he was defeated by guess who? Conor McGregor, uh, in what was one of McGregor's early career UFC bouts. It was, Max Holloway's sixth fight in the octagon, but he's still such a young guy. Yeah, he was like 12 then, right? Right. Yeah, he had just uh, he rode his bike over from the middle school yeah. and fought Conor McGregor. Had to lock it up outside the arena and then run inside real quick and Since fight. Since then, he's got a, a farmer's grip of wins, most recently over Anthony Pettis, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, Charles Oliveira, and Cub Swanson, which is obviously a, a list of opponents not to sneeze at in this division. And you're right, has looked better and better all the time and seems like a championship material type guy. And maybe the biggest question Ben headed into uh, this fight is whether or not Jose Aldo uh, is still that Jose Aldo that you mentioned from the WEC, just because the only real evidence that we have to go on since he beat Chad Mendez way back in 2014 is that 13 second loss to Conor McGregor and then to the following year. And then in 2016, that unanimous decision that he won against Frankie Edgar uh, at UFC 200, which, you know, a lot like their first fight was a clear cut win, uh, for Jose Aldo. But at the same time, he didn't go out there and blow anybody's doors off. And I realize with an opponent like Frankie Edgar, that's hard to do. But I think when he gets in the cage this weekend against Max Holloway, one of the things I'm going to be looking for is whether he can get back to being that untouchable Jose Aldo or whether that guy at just 30 years old, is is gone well what i wonder too is that remember when the book on jose aldo was that you can't really fuck with him early in a fight but if you can get him to the fifth round he will he'll get tired and he'll kind of take his foot off the the gas a little bit and we saw that in a couple of his fights you know that fight uh with ricardo lamas the fight with mark hominick a little bit uh and then though it was at the uh i believe the chan sung Jung one where you kind of realize like okay you you can't just hang around and wait for him to run out of gas. You've got to make him run out of gas. Uh, you you know, you've got to keep that pressure on him in, or, in order to have that succeed. Max Holloway seems in a lot of ways like the kind of guy to pull that off, like the kind of guy who can be in your face and bring enough different things uh, to force you, you know, both like physically and mentally to just kind of fatigue over the course of a fight. And then the kind of guy who could still be there in the fifth round to capitalize on it. Yeah, Max Holloway has some physical tools that I think make him an extremely interesting matchup against Jose Aldo. For one thing, he's a whole heck of a lot taller. He's five foot eleven, so he's going to be the longer fighter. And you know, just from his skill set, that uh, he's going to be able to use uh, his jab, use kicks to to try to control the distance. Uh, and and so it's going to be interesting to see Jose Aldo, who is known. Uh, you know, not only as a power striker, but just as a guy uh, who has those thunderous leg kicks and has what is at times uh, flawless technical boxing, which especially in his UFC career has been what sort of typified his title reign there. It's going to be interesting to see him come out and try to do that against a guy like Max Holloway, who arguably has the the uh, more impressive physical tools uh, and whether or not Jose Aldo can still go out there and, and run with a, a young gun who's only 25 years old, like Max Holloway, who seems to be right there at the top of his game. And like I said, not a tremendous amount of data to go on with Jose Aldo just in the last, you know, two or three years. Yeah. Uh, okay. Like, here's one other thing though I want to talk about with this event. Okay. Interesting main event, right? Like we just talked about for a lot of reasons. Aside from the main event, 
this is a garbage pay-per-view it's kind of a stinker we're going back to rio de janeiro uh for what i've already said is going to be an outstanding featherweight title fight in the main event other than that man whoo you are are not looking at a lot of very interesting stuff happening here uh and just to to kind of underscore that vitor belfort and nate marquardt fighting at light heavyweight as if we're just we're not even going to bother really we're just <laughs> we're basically going to show up as is and and do the damn thing yeah i mean claudia gadelia and and carolina kovalkiewicz in a, a women's strawweight kind of contender fight like okay although it does kind of feel like we we know what to make of them both and, and where to fit them in the division at this point but that should be an interesting fight yeah then like you said you're going to have dad bod vitor rolling out there at light heavyweight and you're not even really going to have the added juice of knowing whether that is the final fight of his career or not, just that he says it'll be a final fight in the, the UFC. You know as well as I do, if he shows up and it's Vitor versus Roy Nelson in Bellator, that's not an outlandish possibility. Um, and then, you know, it looks like a lot like from there, just a UFC fight night card from Brazil. Yeah, you got Marlon Moraes making his UFC debut, right? The uh, former bantamweight champion from World Series of Fighting is going to be the uh, quote-unquote featured featured prelim on Fox Sports 1 against Rafael Asuncao, so you can get that one for free on Fox Sports 1. Aside from that, uh, yeah, man, this is kind of rough. I guess I am most looking forward to Karolina Kovalkiewicz's pre-fight demeanor, where she's out there. You like she, the wink? I like that she stands over there leaning against the cage with her arms behind her back, like she's smoking a cigarette outside a club waiting for her, her Uber. Like yeah. that's basically that's a, well, how, as excited as she is before she goes out there and, and fights someone in the, in the octagon, which, Hey man, you want to, you want to try to be on team Dundas. That's sort of like no big deal. Pre-fight demeanor goes a long way. I bet me. it does. I bet it does. Anyway, you want to do just saying stuff and then we will uh, get out of here for this week. Sure. Ben, what is your, just saying stuff for this week. Well, Chad, you mentioned Alexander Gustafson's in-cage proposal to his girlfriend. I was thinking after watching that, you know, I'm sitting there Sunday afternoon here in the One True Time Zone when that fight wraps up. It's He's just gone out there in the main event, had a great performance, put on this uh, spectacular beatdown on Glover Teixeira, asked his girlfriend to marry him on live TV, uh, you know, puts a pretty sizable diamond ring on her finger, uh, and she hugs him even through all the blood and everything. If you ever wanted to ask for something weird in the bedroom. Wait, what? What now? That's the night. That's the night for Alexander Gustafson. Whatever, whatever weird stuff you were thinking of, but you weren't quite sure when or how to bring it up uh, to optimize your chances of, of making that dream come true, seize the moment, man, because it's not going to get a whole lot better than that. How long had your wife been gone? Before you started having these thoughts, you know, a couple of days she'd been gone on three, vacation? four days. Yeah. Three, four days. Yeah. So you're just a lonely single guy, essentially. Listen, man, just, just because what you would do in that situation is be like, all right, missionary again. Maybe Alexander Gustafson has something up his sleeve. Maybe there's a cheerleader costume in the closet. And he's like, well, there's never going to be a better time to break it out. You're telling me Alexander Gustafson gets even freakier than lady on her back. Uh, I mean, Lusty Gusty might have some tricks of a sleeve you don't know about. Just saying. <laughs> wow, that's, that took a left turn there. I'm that just saying. Anticipating. Uh, ben, this week, I'm just saying, did you see? I, well, you know you did. It was on your website, the MMA Junkie. It's, it's a staff report, which tells you right there, uh, that boxing promoter Bob Arum has come out and said, if Conor McGregor can't make it happen with Floyd Mayweather, well, hell, Manny, there's Manny Pacquiao. Standing over here. Oh, thanks. Ready to go. Quote from uh, from Bob Arum. If McGregor is still looking for an opponent, Manny Pacquiao is there. He told TMZ. So this thing just has class and credibility written all over it. I'm just saying, come on, people. We can't keep doing this. If Manny Pacquiao is not available, we're going to have him fight Tex Cobb. What the? <laughs> we just, I guess I'm still looking for a way out of this thing. You know, it's like people have found an idea that they think works, and uh, they're not going to examine too deeply why the idea works. They're just going to try to plug in as many different parts as they can and go with it. Just saying. 
Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. We're going to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 212 and, and look ahead to the other events of, of June, I guess. We'll be into June by that point. Uh, we got uh, Holly Holm against Betch Kohea coming up that month. You got, uh, what do you got, Mark Hunt's fighting again, right? Or uh, No, no, Derek Lewis. Who's he fighting? Mark Hunt? He's fighting Mark Hunt. There you go. I'm so all over it. Yeah, you're right Not even when you're wrong. Not confused at all. Yeah. I actually, just, anyway. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. And what do you think Alexander Gustafson says? Hey, you know your friend... I think you're spending Marlena, just way whatever. too much time thinking about this this way, man. Just a lonely guy in the middle of the afternoon. If you don't, if you don't think about it, you're gonna combat. let you're gonna let that opportunity slip through your fingers, man. Because you try to do it three days after you won the main event and proposed on live TV, and it's like, okay, well, I'll think about it. You do it that night, how are you gonna say? It?